And I want to begin this morning with a story from David Paulison, who wrote in an article about one of the first conflicts he had with his wife. He writes, one of the first conflicts that my wife and I solved actually involved four small arguments in a row. That is significant in itself. You will find that many arguments are patterned. They are repeatedly triggered by the same sort of situation. They play out the same themes, as if the two parties follow a script and act on cue. In our case, things got tense between my wife and I on four successive Sunday evenings in June. We had been married less than a year. I was working as a summer intern in our church. Let me set the stage, first from my vantage point and then from hers. For me, Saturday was a busy, high-pressure day. I was focused on preparing for Sunday's events. Many activities would come to a head throughout the day. Sunday morning, I got up early to finish preparing to preach and teach and lead. The day was intense, filled with many responsibilities and with people, people, people. I'd talk with people, listen attentively, express care and concern, try to help, pray. I'd counsel both informally and formally. In the afternoon, we often extended hospitality. I often had to preach in the evening or lead worship. After the last conversations had ended, my wife and I would get home about 8 o'clock Sunday night. I had one thing on my mind, rest. I defined rest as the peace and quiet to savor the sports page sip a tall glass of iced guava juice, and eat Fig Newtons. I was ready to close up shop on relating to fellow human beings. You can see where this is heading. (laughs) Meanwhile, what was my wife experiencing? For the previous two days, she had supported her husband in all the things he had to do. She had prayed for each of my responsibilities and had borne with my preoccupation. She had watched me talk with other people, offering them a seemingly endless supply of hospitality, patience, attentiveness, biblical input in response to their needs and concerns. She too had been active in hospitality or teaching Sunday school. Now we finally had an opportunity to be together, an opportunity to talk intimately and personally, an opportunity to look at the week ahead and do some planning and praying. Come Sunday night at 8 o'clock, she had one thing on her mind, personal connection. She wanted a sympathetic and listening ear someone to hear how her weekend had gone, to bear her burdens, to share her joys, to walk arm in arm into the next week. Do you get the picture? There's only one train track, but two trains heading towards each other. The northbound and the southbound trains are due to collide precisely at 8 o'clock on Sunday evening. You've likely, even this morning, already been reminded of how difficult relationships can be, and it's not even noon. Whether you're a parent or a child or a spouse or a friend or a roommate or you just had to share the road with somebody on the way to church this morning, life with other people is not easy. Really, none of us should be surprised that our relationships are marked with that type of sin and struggle. We should actually be shocked that they survive because we so often approach them in ungodly, unbiblical ways. As you can see, we're Taking a a break this week from our time in Luke, with how scheduling worked out, I I needed to pick a text, and I wanted to beat you up this morning, so I came to James chapter 4. Now, this is a passage I often come back to in my own life and in counseling, and honestly, I just wanted to spend a lot of time in it this week and be able to share that with you all. So most of our time this morning will just be in verses 1 through 4, which is a shame. 
There's so much after that. We'll, we'll mention briefly, but the focus of our time will be in those first four, vo- four verses together. And the truth found here is such a critical part of understanding why relationships are so hard and what we're called to do about that. I remember as I grew up with two younger brothers and now in my own parenting, as you hear the yelling and the screaming from the other room and you walk into the room, one of the first questions that come to to my mind and what I usually ask is, what's the problem? What's going on? What's the problem here? And almost 100% of the time, the answer begins with someone else's name, right, or pointing. The same thing is true in most counseling situations with adults, whether it's parents and their kids or friends or spouses. What's the problem that brings you in today is often answered with another person's name. Begins with pointing. James here at the beginning of chapter 4 asks a similar question to what's the problem. Verse 1 reads, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Where is this coming from? Why is this happening? It's as if he asked them, what is the problem here? But as we see, instead of giving them the opportunity to point the finger, he answers them according to what is actually true. Why are you fighting as the church? Why is there quarreling going on within the people of God? Why do you fight? Why are relationships like this? The default answer in all of us is because of them. Because of the situation. Because that's all I saw growing up. Because I'm moody or tired or didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Or because it has been a week that you wouldn't even understand if I told you. Or even if we're a little bit more sanctified in our answers, we would say something like, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I know I bring my own issues to the table, but are you seeing this? Do you see how hard it is? If they would just do this, then I wouldn't have to respond like this. And that's not how James answers the question. That's not how the rest of Scripture answers the question, what's the problem? What does James tell us is the problem? First, we see the problem is distorted desires. What does James say next? Is it not this? What's the problem? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What's the problem? Your desires have become distorted. And the effect of those distorted desires is fighting and quarreling and hatred and murder and envy, discontentment. It says your passions are warring within you. The pleasures that you want are fighting for supremacy in your life and they're winning. And it's showing off in the way you interact with other people. It's showing off in the way you fight and quarrel and do whatever you can to get whatever you want. This word desire means pleasure, points to the idea of a sinful or self-serving pleasure. Again, you desire something so badly that you're willing to sin in order to get it. 
The things you want become so important to you that you will do whatever it takes to secure it in that moment. And that will always lead to difficulty. The idea here is you're willing to do whatever it takes to get what you want, whether that's to murder or to fight or to quarrel, to steal. Peter uses the same language in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The conflict James is addressing is not because of a righteous passion. It's not because you have a holy anger for the glory of God or you're looking out for the good of the other person. It's a selfish, prideful desire that James calls out here. Yet this is not the answer most of us would give to James' question. We have to recognize that our default setting is to be a pointer. Like those that see the speck in our brother's eye while a log sticks out of our own. We're tempted to believe that every problem is someone else or something else. But the truth is we fight, we quarrel, we murder, we steal because we don't get what we want. We don't get the response we want. We don't get it in the tone we want it in. We don't get the obedience, the submission, the thoughtfulness, the respect, and that's frustrating. It's not wrong to want your husband to love and listen to you. It's not wrong to want your children to obey and respect you. It's not wrong to want to be respected and cared for by other people, to want a roommate that picks up their dirty clothes and respects the rules of the house. It's not wrong to want a cup of coffee or a scoop of Grater's ice cream in moderation. Right? It's not wrong to want to arrive somewhere on time and not get stuck in traffic. But when those desires being met become more important than anything else, you're willing to railroad who's ever in front of you to get that. It has become a devastating problem. Here's an important, I think, evaluation for you. If you haven't heard this before, this has been so helpful to me. When we're talking about this desire, this passion that James is referring to, how you can try to figure out if something has become a sinful desire when you sin to get it or sin if you don't get it. It's become too important if you're willing to sin to get it or sin if you don't get it. You desire it too much, and so then you demand it, you believe you deserve it, and then the conflict is right behind. The anger, the bitterness, and so then fighting and quarreling, even within the people of God, begins to define our relationships. And most often, it's going to be the people we spend the most time with, the ones we're called to love the most, because they get in our way most often. There's more opportunities for that. So that's within the church, a lot of what James is getting after, but it's also within the home. It's even with our interactions with a waiter who doesn't serve us up to our expectations, right? It, it comes out in that way. And this is truly destructive, not only in our earthly relationships, but it shows off an even, even greater problem that we'll see in just a moment. But James, like Paul and Peter, choose the language of war as they describe this. Not because there's no other way of saying it, because they're trying to express 
the devastating effects of living this way, of letting your desires control you. And even though, without a doubt, other people bring their own sin into the situation, they bring their own sin into the relationship, the reason we fight is because there is a war going on in us. So what is it that you want that makes you a fighter or a flighter, which is not a word, but it rhymes with fighter. So either can show off our desires, right, desires that have gone too far, but here specifically, what is it that makes you not be able to let something go, to have to get the last word, to have to engage in that battle to get what you want, to speak words as if they are weapons. What is it? It's your desires gone wrong. But what are those desires? You have to be able to think through that and evaluate that in your own heart. What are those desires? What is it that you always get angry about? That always pulls you into a fight? That you want, but you are not getting. That you think you need and you must have. I want to list off just a few more examples, but I want you to notice in these that none of them are sinful in and of themselves. But when we sin to get them or sin if we don't get them, it reveals they have become distorted. A coach who gives me enough playing time, a dad who will spend time with me, a boss who appreciates my work and thanks me, a husband who loves me and leads me well, a neighbor that will stop their dog from barking, a husband or wife who fulfills me sexually. A child who gets good grades, says yes, sir, and does well in sports. A construction company that finishes the project on time. Respect, affection, for them to admit their sin. Simple, common courtesy is all I'm asking for in a relationship. Peace and quiet. I mean, the list could truly be endless. Desires that can lead to fighting and quarreling and show that they have become too important. They become heart-controlling desires. One author writes that in James 4, we have Christians who hadn't really come to grips with themselves, their grudges, their jealousy, their own hearts, their own lusts. They were blaming their problems on outward conditions or each other. Yet, when we stop focusing on everyone around us, as we see later in the text, God's grace and mercy is available to us. But it seems, even as I've thought about this in my own life this week, that just the, the tendency for seeking my own pleasure is so a part of my life. At all costs, seeking my own pleasure becomes so normal Without even realizing what is happening, I'm making every decision and responding to things naturally in a way that's ungodly because it's all centered around that, me getting what I want. So then we end up making every decision, we move in every direction that our desires kind of lead us. So we must become aware of our desires, how they become distorted and also recognize who the real enemy is in this war. The desires that wage war in you. The, the other person is not the enemy. And they become the enemy when they get in the way of what we want. Instead of the selfish desires. Instead of 
loving the world too much, as we'll see in a minute, and not loving and following after our God as much as we are called to in the ways we are called to. Ken Sandy summarizes what we see in James 4, those first two verses this way. When we feel we cannot be satisfied unless we have something we want or think we need, the desire turns into a demand. If someone fails to meet that desire, we condemn him in our heart and quarrel and fight to get our way. In short, conflict arises when desires grow into demands and we judge and punish those who get in our way. This is the progression of desires that are out of line, that are distorted. But what else is a part of the problem here that James lays out? Second is distorted asking. Verse 2 picks up, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There that word is again, sinful pleasures, passions. Instead of taking good desires to the Lord or even taking desires we're unsure if they're good or not to the Lord and trusting them to him, whether he gives them to us or not, we either don't go to him because we want to just take care of it on our own, we'll manipulate this into being. We'll guilt this into being, whatever whatever means necessary, so we don't go to him. Or we realize they're sinful, and obviously we're not going to pray to God for desires that we know are sinful. Or if we do go to him, we bypass all of that, and we do expect him to feed our passions. The asking that we see Jesus talk about in Matthew 7, where he says, ask and it shall be given to you, is an asking that is motivated by God's kingdom, God's rule, God's name, his will being done. Not the type of asking that is fueled by a self-love or a distorted desire. So what makes our prayers ineffective in this way is that they simply serve our lusts our sinful passions. They're to be spent, verse 3, or used not for good purposes, but simply to gratify us. Appreciated the way one commentator put it. He said, God will not answer a prayer that aims no higher than the belly. Paul says of the enemies of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Why would God answer the prayer of a believer who wants to live like an enemy of Christ? When our prayers aim no higher than our belly, they aim no higher than our passions, sinful desires. But the solution is not to shy away from praying because we don't know if we'll ask in the right way. The solution is to stop going, to not stop going to him. It's to go to him, to run to him. As we'll see in verses 7 and 8, we're told to submit to him, to draw near to him in those moments. Instead of envying or instead of fighting for what we want, when we have strong desires that begin to wage war, we should go to him. We should run to him. Instead of running into the fight, we run to our God. We draw near to him, praying that we will be willing to have whatever answer he gives, which is always better. We must learn to pray and teach our hearts to pray, Lord, this is what I desire, but truly not my will, but yours be done. Help me not to fight for this in an ungodly way, to not even desire the things that would pull me away from my relationship with you and cause me to love this world more than I should. 
to recognize when a desire has become distorted. And when we do this, we will either have the desire in a healthy, godly way, or we will have God's best for us in that moment. And either way, it's a win. Because this allows us to love God and trust him and fear him and also love others well. Tim Keller wrote, if we are living lives in which God does not have our highest allegiance, then we will use prayer instrumentally, selfishly, simply to try to get the things that may be already ruining our lives. And God is not going to fund the adultery of his people. He's not going to answer the the selfish, sinful passions that we plead with him for so that we can become more and more a friend of the world and live as if we are not his. So go to him first. When desires are at war, when you want to engage in quarreling and fighting and envy, when you want to do whatever it takes to get what you want, go to him, confessing and asking and submitting Asking in the right way. So what's the problem? Distorted desires, distorted asking. And then I think in verse 4 we see distorted friendship. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In verse 4, James rebukes spiritual adultery. He, he rebukes friendship with the world, which then puts us in opposition to God. We see the language of the prophets here through James. In verse 4, he condemns his audience as an adulterous people, going after small g gods. When James calls them adulterous people, he's characterizing them as the unfaithful people of God when they let these sinful desires rule, when they grow in their friendship with the world, seek friendship with the world. Friendship here is a little bit deeper than we often think about it in our culture. It's an intimate relationship in James' world. It's an attachment to, a love for, a growth in affection. I don't think he's referring here to saints that still sin I think he's referring to a settled affection, this this strong attraction that we have to the way the world operates and thinks and the things they pursue, live for. John Calvin said, so great is the disagreement between the world and God that as much as anyone inclines to the world, so much he alienates himself from God. It's the only way it works. As you incline yourself to the world, you move away from God. You move away from a a relationship with him that is healthy in the way he's called us to as his people. And we can subtly begin to have a heart with greater affection, greater devotion, greater desire for things that aren't God. Another word for this is idolatry. This idolatry is expressed through worldliness, or as James describes it, a friendship with the world, a distorted friendship. Worldliness is not owning an iPhone. Or, or dancing, if you grew up in the church I did, right? Or, or movies, although those things can certainly be avenues to worldliness. But worldliness is a matter of our orientation. Are we oriented towards God or are we oriented towards the world? 
Are we finding direction and meaning and satisfaction in the world rather than in our creator, redeemer? James calls it friendship and adultery with the world. We're warned of this in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, hear that word desires again, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John has in mind desires and attitudes that are Sinful and distorted, just as James has talked about. Jerry Bridges defined worldliness as being attached to or engrossed in or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life, an orientation around the things that are temporal, the things that our desires seek after, the way the world thinks and operates And then we orient ourselves around that rather than God. And this is a completely disordered way of living for the Christ follower. When we make something other than God our supreme loyalty or orientation, the sun with which we revolve around, every decision, every reaction around that, we should be rightly rebuked as those who are committing spiritual adultery. We have a deep friendship with the world, making ourselves enemies with God. Ultimately, how does that show itself off? As living as if the people in our lives are our enemies. It starts with a spiritual adultery that leads to conflict, that leads to brokenness, that makes things harder than they actually have to be. These desires are controlling us, and our orientation is towards the world. We will struggle. In this way, our relational conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. That's why it's not just about learning some new communication tactics or figuring out ways to put our head in our pillow and count to 10 until we can come back to the room, right? Those things can can help at times, right? But ultimately, it's about a spiritual adultery. It's about living as if we are enemies of God. Our cravings begin to directly compete with God himself for rule and reign. So where you find fighting and quarreling and murder and envy and coveting, discontentment, you find people obeying the desires of a different master and a different Lord, which is why James takes them and and, and us where he does. Just think about the last time you had an ungodly interaction with someone, with a coworker or a spouse or a family member or a child or a friend, what was more important to you in that moment than the rule and reign of God, than God's glory, than obeying and following after him? What was more important in that moment? What were you not getting that to you in that moment was more important than your relationship with God? I think these questions can help us to better understand why conflict does not get resolved in a healthy way. Why we fight and quarrel so much. Truly, what has become more important to me than my relationship with God? How far have I allowed my desires to just run wild, to blind me 
to where my true loyalties lie. I think one thing that conflict helps us do in, in relationships, God graciously gives us relationships, but I think that the struggle within those helps to show off who we're truly serving and living for. I think when those things come up, it's a kindness of the Lord to show us that we are not living as if we are a friend of God, as if we are a son or a daughter of God. We're living as if we are the ones that should be elevated on the throne when we respond and live in these ways. So I think asking these questions, thinking through these things together as the church, that's a part of what we're called to do, to see these things in our hearts so that we can address the spiritual adultery. And notice verse 4 uses the language, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world or determines to be a friend of the world. We don't just drift into this friendship. We make a choice to have an affair with the world. The term used here means resolves or chooses, determines in the sense of it's a deliberate act. Whenever a Christian becomes a lover of the world, while they may not have made one choice to commit spiritual adultery, they have made many decisions along the way that led there. This deliberate wish or determination to become a friend of the world rightly involves a negative relationship with God. That's what James is trying to get them to see and and us to see. It's unthinkable to pursue being an enemy of God, but that's what you're doing when you pursue the world. If someone were to look at your life and your values, would they say that you are a friend of God or would they say that you are a friend of the world? Just even consider your relationships and ask yourself if the problems you have might have grown out of an ungodly jealousy and ambition that's in line with the way the world thinks. If you're, as your love for the world has grown, you have become an enemy of God. And ask those questions so that we don't live as if we are God's enemies. The, the fight is bigger than just me taking out my bad day on my kids. It's bigger than just normal teenage drama or someone hearing my car horn for five extra seconds this morning. It's bigger than that. This is me living as if I am an enemy of God. These aren't small things. But when we, if we have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, alone for salvation, we are no longer his enemies. We are no longer separated from him. We once were his enemies, but we are no longer his enemies. We've been reconciled to God. We are sons and daughters, no longer under the condemnation we deserve. And so here we are called to live as if that's true. Don't live as an adulterer. Live as if you are a friend of God, a child of the Most High God, to examine if there's any wicked way in us this morning. What we see revealed in verses 1 to 3 often can show that off. And I don't want you to maybe be discouraged for just a second, but not for long. I don't want you to be discouraged for long this morning by what verses 1 through 4 expose. I want you to, I pray that we're humbled and repentant and broken over these things. James was not holding back. I mean, that is, you adulterous people is strong language. He's not holding back 
from these believers that he's writing to. But we should also thank God for exposing these things in us, for allowing us to see it, to not just be discouraged and kind of wallow in self-pity, but to be thankful that God has not left us in it, not allowed us to continue to be blinded by it. Let it be used by God in your life as you repent and run to him, as you submit to him, verse 7, as you humble yourself before him, verse 6, as you rest in his grace that is greater, verse 6, greater than all our sin, greater than all our selfish desires. Does the reality of sin, though, make you want to just quit your relationships? Does it make you daydream about living on your own? Or escaping to an island. Finding someone else that you'll have no problems with. Or at least maybe less problems with. Let me tell you, in all of those escapes, you will still be there. Problem not avoided. God can use, though, our brokenness, our conflict our distraction to expose what's going on, to expose idols, to reveal where our loyalties actually lie so that we will confess and draw near, so that we will humble ourselves before him, flee from the enemy. Verses five and six could easily be an entire sermon after all James has exposed After all he has rebuked the believer for, look where he takes them. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Against all that we have just seen, All that I've been reminded of every day this week as I've studied this text that I picked, right? Against a backdrop of all of that, every sinful desire, against a backdrop of sinful desires that make relationships really hard with God, first and foremost, and with others, God gives more grace to those who seek him. The solution here is always a God-centered solution. It's not a white-knuckle solution. It's a submission to him and a resisting of the enemy. It's drawing near to God and the enemy will flee. It's drawing near to God and he will draw near to you. Grieving over what you've done. Humbling yourself before God as you rest in this grace that is greater. Part of of being humble in this way is realizing you don't know what's best. You can't do it. But your Father does know what's best, and He will do it. That's part of approaching Him in humility, understanding you can't do it. You don't know what's best. It's no longer taking matters into your own hands to get what you want. It's instead entrusting yourself to your sovereign and and wise and good Father. 
Right now, you can turn from your own way and go his way. Whether for the very first time in repentance and faith in Jesus, or for the thousandth time in repentance and faith, continuing to trust in the work of Jesus. And the word promises you will find grace there. Grace that does not run out. Grace that has no end. Grace that doesn't say, no, you know what? You went into a fight one more time. I think I'm done. You know what? I think you loved the world a little too much today. I think we're done. But grace that is greater and deeper and wider than all our sin. So believe today... And again, I wish we could spend more time in in the second half of this chapter, this section. But there is grace for the struggle. There is hope for your relationship. There is a, a hope for you today. There's hope that God can do what you cannot do on your own. Hope for relationships with other people that are in the process. This section begins with an honest assessment of where conflict comes from, where fighting and quarreling and murder and coveting, where it all comes from. And that's not where we are abandoned, though. We're not left to our own devices or wisdom or know-how to figure it all out. There's always more grace. So the solution is, to, is not to stop desiring, to just shut off any and all desire. The solution is to stop desiring the wrong things too much and start desiring the right things more. So what stops our fighting is our wanting who he is more than we want our passions. What stops our fighting is is finding our souls satisfied by what we believe is our ultimate good and just continuing to draw near to him, humbling ourselves before him as we seek to walk in faithfulness. I want to mention just a few resources that I would highly recommend. There's so much more that could be said this morning So much more so that I'm going to mention a conference where you can learn about some more of this in just a minute. But these are some really helpful resources for families, for individuals, for couples. Uh, They should be on the screen. Yep. So uh, all of these are in the bookstall. All of these are on Amazon. I mean, you can find them anywhere. Um, But the two on the left are by the same author. One is The Peacemaker, a Biblical Guide for Personal Conflict. He's written one for the families. That's very helpful. Uh, He's written one for teenagers. I mean, he's written one for every age demographic, I think. But really great resource for continuing to just think on this and grow in this. And what are next steps? And what does this look like? This impacts all of us. So how do we continue to grow in these ways? Uh, The Pursuing Peace in the Middle by Robert Jones. I'll mention that in just a minute. And then Relationships, A Mess Worth Making by Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane. And then Marriage Conflict, all the way on the right, Talking as Teammates. That's actually a 31-day devotional. I mean, one page per day, really easy to go through as a couple on your own. Um, But I want to mention the one in the middle, uh, 
pursuing peace, that is not at the bookstall because if you come to the fall conference, everyone will get a copy that's at the fall conference. So this is a shameless plug here for the fall conference on November 11th and 12th. It's a Friday evening, 7 to 9, and then just a few hours in the morning. And it's a biblical view of pursuing peace. So, so much of what we talked about this morning is kind of fleshed out over five sessions with Dr. Robert Jones, who wrote this book. And I think it's just going to be such a beneficial time for us. So it felt like it fit well here and would be a good place to just remind you of that. Um, and these are ways we want to try to help one another, equip one another, equip you to do this more faithfully. I need to be reminded of this. We all, we all have relationships, and they're all hard. So how do we do this more biblically, more faithfully? So if you can be a part, great. It'll also be just an encouragement to you to be able to help others. Because if you're not in the middle of conflict, you know lots of people that are. Okay, so I would encourage you to, to look at that. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we'll close our time in prayer this morning.